for a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask uh, now that as we come to think about your word, Lord, that you would open our hearts to receive it, and Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold your glory. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, how would you fix the world? Uh, It's a difficult question. And when we've asked people uh, that we know, we've got a whole lot of interesting answers and we've been thinking about those answers over the last few weeks. Some people suggested that we could fix the world by fixing people. Some people suggested we could fix the world by fixing politics. Some people wondered whether it was even possible to fix the world at all. But what was really interesting, I think, was that apart from one person whose whose answer came in right at the last moment, apart from one person, nobody thought that the world was not broken. Everybody believed that the world was not as it should be and that somehow it needed to be fixed. Everybody accepted the premise of the question. That something is wrong and something needs to be done. We all agree that the world is broken, but what should the world be like? Once we fix it, what should it look like? In 1971, John Lennon imagined what the world should be like. He sung, Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. He imagined a world without violence and hatred, a world without greed and hunger, a world without possessions, a world without heaven and hell, a world without religion and a world without God. That was his vision of what the world should be like. But what we're going to do this morning is is looking at this passage uh, that Jacob read for us from Revelation 21 is to see what the Bible's vision is of what the world should be like. And not in fact just what the world should be like, but actually the vision that the Bible presents of what the world will be like. 
Because what this passage is about is about God showing the Apostle John what the world is going to become through Jesus Christ. Well, what should the world be like? What will the world be like? First of all, the world will be a lot like the world that we currently live in. The Apostle John describes the world that God will bring to be in verse 1, saying, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away. John sees a new heaven and earth. Heaven here is not referring so much to the place where God is, but to the heavens, that is the sky, the universe, the stars. The language of heavens and earth links back to the very first verse in the Bible where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What God created in Genesis 1 was the creation, the universe, the earth, the stars and the planets, the sun and the moon. In other words, heaven and earth isn't describing two different places where God is compared to where we are, but the universe as a whole. What John sees is a whole new universe, a whole new creation. By linking the new heaven and earth with the existing heaven and earth, it implies that what John sees is not a radically different world, a a world of a radically different kind, but the same kind of world as the world that we presently inhabit. So when you buy a new car... A new car and an old car, they're still both cars, aren't they? You don't buy a new car and get home and suddenly discover that it's a plane. They're both cars. And so it is with the new heavens and earth. They're both universes of the kind that we're familiar with. In the Old Testament, in a book called Isaiah, God tells of how he's going to restore the world. And again, he uses that language of new heaven and earth. God describes it like this. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. But the dust, but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. In other words, you see... The vision that God shows is a vision of a physical universe, of a tangible place, with experiences very much like the experiences that we have now. So too it's often observed that while the Bible begins in a garden, it ends in a city. When God created human beings, he gave us the task of developing and cultivating the good world that he had made. And we've done that. We have in many ways cultivated the world that God has made. And the fact that the Bible ends in a city suggests that all the progress and all the development in the world will not be lost in that new creation. It's not as though the new creation will come and we'll all be living in trees and under, you know, kind of in in tents or something like that in the wilderness. The new creation is not pristine wilderness without a, a building in sight. No, it's a world very much like the world that we experience today. A world which has been developed and cultivated as God commanded us to do. Part of the answer then to the question, what should the world be like, is in many ways that the world will be very much like the world that we live in. It won't be a bodiless kind of vapour world. It will be a physical world, a tangible world. It will be a world where people work and do things. 
A world where people make things and use things. A world where people build houses and plant trees. A world where people work in the garden and play with animals. A world where people explore and make new discoveries in science. A world where people write books and where people read books. A a world where people play music and where other people enjoy it. It will be a world where we enjoy many of the things that God made us to enjoy in this world. What will the world be like? In many ways, the world will be like the world that we currently inhabit. But the world will also not be like this world. In significant ways, the world will be different. And this passage that uh, we read highlights three key ways that the world will be different. First of all, it will be a world without sorrow. Verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's also what John means in verse 1 when he says that the new heaven and earth will not have any sea. He's not saying that there'll be no ships or surfing or scuba diving or anything like that. But But in Israelite culture, the sea was a place of chaos and turbulence. It still is, isn't it, really? I mean, the sea is still a dangerous place. Some friends of mine were driving down uh, the west coast of Victoria a few years ago and uh, they decided to go out for a swim. It was just the two of them. It was a, there was no one else at the beach and they got stuck in a rip and they couldn't get out. They knew what they had to do, but they, they just couldn't do it. Uh, and thankfully, a surfer happened to be coming by and he paddled, paddled out and pulled them out of the rip. The sea is a, is a, is a turbulent place. It's a place of danger. And in the symbology of uh, this passage, that's exactly what's going on. To say there won't be any sea in the new creation is really saying there'll be an end to chaos and distress and uncertainty. The threat of violence and death. The world will be a world which is similar to the world that we live in, but it will also be vastly different. It will be a world without chaos and distress and death and sadness. As one person has summed it up, we'll experience joy without weeping, life without death, creating without fear that what we've created will be destroyed. God will get rid of those things and he'll stoop down and wipe every tear from our eyes with his own hand. It's a picture of extraordinary compassion and love from the God who rules our universe, who made our universe. Not just that there'll be an end to sorrow, but that God himself will do it with his own hand. It's almost impossible to imagine what such a world would be like. Because death and sadness and chaos are so deeply entwined in our existence. It seems especially relevant at the moment, I think, as one of our friends, one of our members, Reg, is facing death. And even though he knows, and even though we know, that if he dies, he goes to be with his Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, to await the resurrection of the dead. Even though we know that and we are full of confidence that that is exactly what is going to happen, That even though he dies, he will go on living. Even though we know that, the prospect of separation, even for a time, the 
prospect of seeing his life here in this world snuffed out is still heartbreaking, isn't it? But it's so much a part of our, our world that we can't imagine a world without it. Imagine a world without death. Last night on the football, the match was raising money for breast cancer, cancer research and support. And outside there was a, a field of pink kind of figurines or silhouettes, if you like. You know, the little, the little pink lady. And people were encouraged to, to come and write their name, write the name of someone that they knew who died or who was to be diagnosed with breast cancer onto one of those silhouettes. Imagine a world without that. No fields to remember the dead. But it isn't just death that confronts us at every turn. We're also confronted by sickness. There are so many people who suffer, if not terminal illnesses, illnesses that drag on for years and decades and that rob them of their life and that rob them of their joy. There are people here in this church who suffer from those kinds of afflictions. Imagine a world without that. And what about all the regret that comes from the mistakes that we've made, mistakes that we can't undo, or the sadness that comes when the things that we've poured our lives into fall into ruin? What about the fear that we have of what terrible thing awaits us just around the corner? Imagine a world without any of that. A world in which God himself comes down and wipes away all our tears. A world in which God overcomes any fear about tomorrow. A world where God ends disease and heals the sick and raises the dead. What should the world be like? Well, the world will be in many ways like the world that we currently inhabit, but it will be so radically different as well because it will be a world without sorrow and sickness and sadness and death. But second, it will be a world without sinners. In verse 8, John sees this, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all lies, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulphur. This is the second death. It's a terrifying prospect but it's part of the picture of what the world will be like and it's crucial to understand how the two connect. Some people will be taken away and they will suffer for eternity and it's hard to come to terms with but I think there are a few important things to say in trying to understand what is going on. First and most importantly, the new world that God is making through Jesus is only a good world because it is a world in which sin is taken away. The new world that God is making is only a good world because it is a world in which sin is taken away. It is sin. It's all those things listed there and many more that make our world a miserable place. Murder destroys lives. It destroys the lives of ordinary people. Rosie Batty, the mother of the boy who was beaten to death by his father at cricket training uh, 
a year or so ago. She said, the day after it happened, I want to tell everybody that family violence happens to everyone. No matter how nice your house is, no matter how intelligent you are, it happens to anyone and everyone. Sexual immorality destroys lives. It destroys relationships. It destroys families. It destroys communities. And it's not just adultery that destroys lives and communities and people. But whenever people use their bodies in a way which is contrary to what God has designed, it damages those people and it damages other people. Let me tell you, a lot more people have been damaged by the sexual revolution than have been damaged by keeping sex within the boundaries of marriage. There are so many people in our world who are hurting because they've been abused sexually and not just by... They've been abused sexually in relationships that they've entered into willingly and acceptingly as well. Sexual immorality destroys our world. False religion damages people and damages our world. False religions lie to people. They give people hope, which is no hope at all. They imprison people with rules and rituals which are pointless and destructive, which end nowhere. They burden people rather than introduce people to Jesus who brings life and hope and peace. You might be wondering why cowardly people are included in the list as well, but within the context of this book of Revelation, it's a reference to people who who have followed Jesus at one point but who have given up on following Jesus out of fear of their lives and and people who return then to living a life without Jesus, without God. You see, at the core of what has damaged our world is the rejection of God and living or trying to live in a world that God has made without God. And so the world to come will be a world without people who reject God, without people who reject the God who made them and who loves them. So in fixing up the world, God promises uh, to not only remove those things, those sins, but to remove the people who practice them and understand that that is essential to making the world a good world. Second, it helps to realise that there are two ways that God removes sin. One is by removing sinners, that's verse 8. The other way of removing sin is by cleaning up the people who are sinners. So there's a hint of that in verse 6. John hears God say, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. God's promise is, Uh, is a promise to give people life, to, to to clean them up, to give them to drink from the spring of the water of life. uh, God's promise is much clearer early on in uh, in Revelation when John sees a whole crowd of people dressed in these beautifully clean white robes standing around the throne of God. And John asks who these people are. Who are these people dressed so beautifully, so immaculately in the presence of God? And so in their replies, they are the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They were filthy, but the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus, has cleansed them, not only from their past, but from the sin that lives in them and the sin that lives in their hearts. 
The new world that God is making through Jesus is only a good world because it is a world in which sin is taken away. And there are two ways that God does that, either by taking away the sinners who refuse to relinquish their sin to Jesus and the cross, or by cleaning people up through the work of Jesus. Third, the new world that God is making in Jesus is not a world that some people would like to be in. Some people are not even remotely interested in the world that God is remaking in Jesus because it's not a world that they want. That is, the very things that that God vows to remove are the very things that they love and cherish. So, for instance, if you offered some people a world without drunkenness, they wouldn't want it because it's what they love. If you offer people a world without sex with whoever they want and whenever they want, they wouldn't want that world because that freedom is the freedom that they want. If you offer to people a world where God was the centre of the universe rather than them, they wouldn't want that world. But that's the world that God is remaking in Jesus. And it's hard to grumble against God for not giving people what they don't want. They don't want a world without the sins that they cherish so dearly. But if you do want a world without sin, without evil, and if you're happy to give those things up and to crucify them in Christ, then the good news is that Jesus can rescue you from them. Because Jesus' mission is to rescue people from sin. So run to Jesus. What will the world be like? The world will in many ways be like the world that we currently inhabit. But it will also be radically different because it will be a world without sorrow and it will be a world without sin. But last of all, it will be a world where God is. The vision that John sees is undoubtedly a strange vision. He sees a city descending from heaven, but it's a city dressed as a bride. You can imagine, can't you? Uh, you know, everybody's at the, at the wedding, at the church, waiting for the bride to come in. The doors open and there's the city waiting at the door, dressed as a bride. That's the kind of vision, this kind of strange vision that John sees. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. It's the nature of this style of literature to heap these kind of images up one on top of the other. It's not trying to describe things concretely, but symbolically. And the combination of images... Uh, is intended to work together to kind of produce the full picture. So there are two images here. One is the city and the other is the bride. The city descending from heaven is the new Jerusalem. It's picking up on a theme from the Old Testament. Uh, Jerusalem was the city of God's people. It was the city where the temple was and the temple was the place where God uh, particularly manifested his presence among his people. And John sees a new Jerusalem descending from God to this new earth. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a vision, it's a picture of God coming to live with his people. The idea is picked up in verse 3 much more clearly, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be 
uh, with them and be their God. But John is not only describing the city descending, but he sees this city adorned as a bride. Throughout the Bible, the relationship between God and his people is described as a marriage relationship. In the New Testament, the church is described as the bride of Christ. It's a picture of deep love and intimacy between God and his people. It's the most precious relationship that we have in our world, and that's the relationship that God has used to to describe, to illustrate his relationship between uh, him and us. What makes this new world a good world is chiefly that God is there and that God is known and loved by his people. It will be a world where God is no longer hidden, a world where God is no longer far off, a world where nobody says anymore, where is God? Where is he in this? It will be a world where God walks with his people, as God walked with Adam and Eve at the beginning of time. It will be a world where God is known, where no one ever says anymore, who is God? And nobody ever has to say anymore, let me teach you about God, let me introduce you to him. Because everybody will know God, and not just know of God, but know him. Know him as a friend, as a father. Know what he likes and what he doesn't like. Understand understand God. It will be a world where God is known. It will be a world where we see the glory of God. Glory such as no one has ever seen before. We know that God is great because the Bible tells us that God is great. But on that day, we'll see it with our own eyes. Uh, My sister was down recently for a holiday and on the holiday we went and we did the walls of Jerusalem. You know, and everyone says, you should do the walls of Jerusalem. It's a great walk. It's beautiful. And you see the pictures and you go, oh yeah, looks okay. (laughs) Not much else to do, I guess I'll do that. But you get there and you climb up that hill and you find yourself in the valley surrounded by these enormous cliffs and it's breathtaking. It's extraordinary. People tell you it's great, but it's not until you set foot there that you see it with your own eyes, that you're overcome with the grandeur and the beauty and the glory of it all. And so it will be on the last day. The skies roll back as a scroll and the trumpet shall sound and the Lord shall descend and we see the glory of God. We've been told about it but we'll see it with our own eyes. And everyone will know as well that they are loved by God. No one will ever ask, does God really love me? Am I saved? Because God's love will be so evident, it will be on display in everything. 
and Jesus will take us by the hand and walk with us and talk with us and embrace us and all that has ever been wrong with the world and all the pain that we've ever suffered and all the awful things that we have ever endured, all those things will melt away in the presence of the glory of God. The world will be a place where God is and where God is known because the greatest gift that God can give us is himself. When John Lennon imagined a perfect world, he imagined a world without God and and a world without the people who love God. And deep down, for many of us, actually, that's the kind of world that we imagine too. And maybe the world that we want. John Piper asks in his book, God is the Gospel. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven? if Christ were not there. We've seen through this whole series that a world without God is not a world worth having. We've seen that the reason that this world is broken is because we've tried to create and live in a world without God. But that's not what the world should be like. The world should be a place where God lives with his people and where God is known and loved. And that's exactly the gift that Jesus has made it possible for us to receive. Jesus died and rose again in order to make a world where people know and love God. Jesus died and rose again to remake us and to bring us to God. Well, if that's the kind of world that you want, then Jesus invites you to receive the promise of that world through putting your trust in him. Jesus invites you to receive forgiveness and reconciliation with God through his life and his death and his resurrection from the dead. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that You have not left us without testimony about what the world should be like. Lord, we know that our world is broken and needs to be fixed. And we know that our world is broken beyond our capacity to fix it. And we know that we ourselves are broken and need to be fixed. And Lord, thank you that you promised to do that in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you have begun to do it in sending Jesus into our world to die in our place and to rise from the dead. And thank you that one day when he returns, he will usher in this beautiful world that you have described to us. Lord, we long for the day when faith shall be sight. We long for the day when you descend to dwell with your people. Lord, we pray that we would be your people through faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.